to finish up chapter 3 in Revelation today. So last week we were, and I'm going to um, review a little bit. Last week we were talking about the one church that stands out as the church that Jesus looked at as one that he had nothing bad to say about it. And we look at the fact that he's looking at a church, the Philadelphia church, which means church of brotherly love. They're not a huge church. They're not a very strong church. They're not a very impactful church. They're not like some of the churches we see maybe here in America that are uh, what we call mega churches. Thousands of people. The buildings are worth probably maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. I think about one in Texas that's probably the largest quote-unquote church. But and their pastor has been called out by other pastors for for not giving the full doctrine, not giving the full message of God. He has given a message that um, holds back a lot of what God has said so he doesn't offend people. He himself, when interviewed, declined to commit very decisively and convincingly that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He declined to take a, a moral stand on on, on what's right before God, what's holy, what's just, what's moral, he declined. A pastor is supposed to be, and a man of God is supposed to be somebody that's very solid in their convictions. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. Uh, the one that comes to mind is Samuel. He wasn't a perfect father. Two of his sons weren't walking in the way of their father. And the people knew it. But when, when Samuel spoke, people were afraid. They were afraid because he spoke God's word. And when he spoke, judgment came. He was a man that from his youth um, was dedicated to God. We use his life story when we dedicate babies in the church. He was the son of Hannah. How can you imagine that you would give maybe a little boy that age, maybe a little bit older, and you'd leave them at the church and you'd say, here, I want them to be with God. I'm dedicating them to be with God from now on. And you walk away and you leave your son there. That was Samuel. And yet, you know, when he spoke, people were afraid that when he'd come into town as a, as a um, itinerant preacher, I guess it's what they call where he went to different stations and preached in different, different parts in Israel, when he would come to town, they would ask him, do you come peaceably? Right? Do you cut you know, something good from God? Or are you coming to, to you know, judge us? Are you coming to um, uh, you know, correct us for you know, our sin before God? They would, they would fear God because he wasn't playing. So anyway, the, he, this individual is not that kind of a man. It's a huge church. It's in the millions of dollars, multi-millions of dollars in buildings and property and television shows and radios and books. But he's not solid teaching God's Word. And so here you have a church that is a contrast to that. A small church. A church that isn't very powerful, yet they have been very faithful to God's Word. They have not, in the face of opposition, in the face of contradiction... In the face of persecution, they have not given in. They have been faithful to God. And so that is the church of Philadelphia. And so he's telling them, look, you know what? Uh, even though you're a humble church and you're poor, and, and you're poor um, yet you're very rich. But So he says here, um, let's go back to, let's go back to verse 10. It says, because you have kept the word of my patience. And we talked about the patience of putting up with everything that's going on around us and waiting patiently, hoping for what God has said. We trust him to the point that, you know, no matter what we're going through, we're going to keep on trusting. Some people, honestly, I don't know what they say they believe because when things get bad, they're like the, the seed that Jesus talked about. They're thrown out amongst the thorns, and when they grow up, they're choked out by the thorns and the cares of this world, and they're offended about certain things about the kingdom of God, and they walk away. Well, I wonder, where was your faith to begin with? 
Because if you believe, you're going to believe through the, through the, the good and the bad. You're going to believe when you feel like it and when you don't, when things are good, when things are not. You remain faithful because you know who you have believed in and you trust him and you know who he is. And so if somebody's looking to God to change their life, to better their life, to turn to over to, to change a leaf, they're looking to him for the wrong reason. Because he's not somebody that's there to give be a, excuse me, be a life coach. He is a he can be a life coach, but that's not his main reason. Or that is that's not his main identity. He is our God, he is our creator, he is our king, he's our Lord. And we're to go to him, yeah, he'll change our lives. But that's not the main reason we go to him. We go to him because we know that he, we belong to him. He is the rightful heir of all things. He is the rightful king. He deserves our worship. He deserves our, our allegiance. He deserves our faithfulness. Not just because of what he will do for us or not. The fact that who he is, the fact that he created everything in the universe, the fact that we're, we're traveling through space on this rock and we're hurling through through space at hundreds of thousands of miles per hour, and we're spinning around uh, in an orbit, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of miles, uh, you know, per second or per hour, and it's a miracle that we haven't been devastated into another planet, haven't been, you know, swallowed up by the sun, uh, our solar system and our galaxies haven't, you know, crashed into another one, uh, so the uh, black holes haven't consumed us. The fact that we live in a planet that's hospitable to us, that God created, and um, made ready for us before we got here shows that God's hands in everything. And in a moment, he can snuff that out and we're gone. Where are we going to go? Where would we go? If the earth is cratered, if the earth is dissolved, if the earth is destroyed, where would we go? All that we think and we believe in this, this ridiculous little world would be a vaporized. There would be no more hobbies. There would be no more no, no, no sports. There would be no more job, no more career. There would be nothing. All you could think about at that moment would be survival. And that would be maybe for a split second because you would be gone. So the fact that we don't recognize who he is and we live in these little fantasy worlds is our major problem. And instead of going to God and saying, well, I came to you to help me out and I've got these issues and there's problems going on in my life and I, you know, I didn't get the help I needed. And all that happened is it got worse. Man, I had trials in my life and temptations and you know, it isn't what I thought was in the brochure. I'm just going to walk back into the world. Where are you going to go to? To liars, to cheats, to murderers, to thieves, to selfish people who are thinking about themselves and then eventually they die and get buried as well. Where are you going to go? If you leave God, if you leave, yeah, we have our issues, but if we leave God, where are we going to go? To who? To what? To what end? And so this church was faithful. They were patient to what God had told them. No matter what, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm going to be faithful. We're a small church. We're not very powerful. We're not very big, but we're faithful to what you said. You are our God. It's like Peter said, where are we going to go, Lord? Do you have the words of life? That's not the way the other church is coming up. So he says um, in verse uh, 11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast or hold solid what you have and don't let anybody take your crown. We saw that last week. We saw how that you're supposed to strive to win. You're not supposed to be mediocre about your life. You're not supposed to be half and half. <clears throat> if I have, I have a lot of faults. I have a lot of faults. But who doesn't? Who doesn't? But I, I cannot stand, and I, I went over it last week, I cannot stand things that are halfway. I just can't. And to, a, to a fault, sometimes to a fault, I, I, I am zealous about things being done right. Being th things being done the best they can be done. Not halfway, not wishy-washy, not half-stepping. I, I can't stand it. Well, he's telling us, he says... He says, hold quickly what you have and don't let anybody take your crown. Hey man, you're in it to win it. If you're going to live this life for Christ, then like that guy, that guy out there said it exactly. He says, you know what? Here I was depressed and I don't know what I was depressed about. And he went turn, turn to this pastor and his pastor's telling him, well, who do you love? He goes, well, I love my family. I love my kids. He goes, who do you love? I love my family. He goes, that's your problem. That's why you're, that's why you're depressed. Because instead of loving God supremely like Jesus told us, he that loves mother, father, son, or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. 
Because we don't have an understanding that those people that we love were created by God. God loves them more than we do. They belong to God eternally. They are His property. They are His. They're not ours. We get to share and enjoy them. But if we love them more than God, then that means that we're willing to capitulate to them before God. That means if they have a point of view or if they have an agenda that comes before God, we're, we're liable to put them before God. That's where our problem is. That's where a major problem is. And so we have to understand, in order for not to be depressed in this life, we have to have a point of, of reference to where we're, we're going to. Our major allegiance in life, our major direction, our major goal in life, if it's not that, we're going to be depressed. Because life will depress us. Life will let us down. People will disappoint us. We will disappoint ourselves. And so if we start looking inside all the time and around us instead of up, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be depressed. And so here he's telling us, look to the finish line. You know, put your finger in there. Go to Hebrews chapter, chapter, uh, I believe it's 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We talked last week about the one that's in the stadium, the Olympic runner, that runs for a medal. Back then they ran for a laurel reef. That was basically a plant they put on their head and basically would wilt and fade away and it would be gone. Today we, we compete in the Olympics for gold, silver, and bronze. But there's a greater, a greater race a greater prize. And so here in in Hebrews chapter 12, he's there, he says, Wherefore, seeing that we also are compassed, that means surrounded, about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Man, the witnesses are so many that it looks like one big cloud of people. You can't even distinguish the individuals because there's a huge mass. You ever been somewhere, like maybe you see those fish in the sea that they they run in these massive schools and you you can't even tell it's the individuals? because there's one big mass of fish moving everywhere or birds. He says, we are so surrounded with such a cloud of witnesses. And that's who's watching our lives as as we run this race for Christ. And that's why he's telling us, don't let anybody take your crown. You're in this race to win, to win a prize, to win glory for God and uh, rewards for yourself when you get to see him. And there's other verses, but we don't have time for that. Maybe another day. But he says here, we're, we're surrounded with a cloud of witnesses. Many of them we cannot see. There are, there are those in the spirit world, the angels, the demons that are watching us. There are people surrounding us at work, in our neighborhood, in our families, everywhere, our school, no matter where we are, there's people surrounding We are surrounded with a cloud of witnesses that are watching our lives. He says, so let us lay aside every weight. Back in the Olympic days, they would... Completely undressed, so there would be no drag, no weight, no resistance. They wanted to give it all they have. They wanted nothing holding them back. That's why they, they use the word speedos in the Olympic uh, swimming events. No, no, uh, no, what do you call it? No drag in the pool. They, some of them shave their heads. Some of them put on this cap so the hair doesn't drag. They want to be sleek. They want to be streamlined. When wrestlers, when wrestlers are, are getting ready to compete, they, they lose weight. They cut weight to the point where it's almost dangerous because they're going to compete at a, at a weight where they're stronger up here, but now they're, they're facing somebody that's a little bit lighter, so now they're stronger because they're pushing against somebody that's less than what they used to be. They lay aside every weight. That's why Paul last week says that we buffet our bodies. We, we, we discipline ourselves to win the prize. He says, let us lay aside every weight. <clears throat> Every sin that does so easily beset us or set us back. <clears throat> Everything in our lives that sets us back. <clears throat> we all have things in our lives that will set us back. We all have personal sin. We have personal um, habits, ways of thinking. He says, if the way we think, the way we live, sets us back, we need to let it go. We need to let it go. We need to evaluate ourselves. Hey, man, is this thing setting me back? Is this keeping me from really being who I need to be and want to be for God? Then we need to set it aside. He said, let us run the race, and here it is, with patience. It's a marathon. It's a long race. 
I remember going on a, um, I was being tested for a, special, a certain unit that I wanted to get into. And it was called selection. I remember they put us through all kinds of torturous events to get through it. And they wouldn't say anything to us. They, we, w- we wouldn't get any feedback. At least if they're screaming in your face, you get feedback. There was no screaming. We had numbers up that we had sewn on the side of our pants, and they would come by and they would write something down. Like, oh, what did they write? Oh, man, was it good? Was it bad? Oh, man, what am I, am I doing okay? And you would be com- com- competing and competing and doing all kinds of different things that they would put on you to basically almost make you fail to see how you're going to handle it. How are you going to handle it? And at the end of the three weeks of selection, <clears throat> of some of the most brutal, brutal training and things that I had ever gone through physically, they say, get everything on your rucksack, your weapon, everything, your water, and there's a truck two miles ahead. When you get to it, I'll take you and you're, you're done with selection. Well, we kept going up and down the sand hills of North Carolina, and you're walking, and you're just like walking on the beach, man. You're not getting anywhere. And you got all this weight on you, and you got all this stuff, and every once in a while they give you more stuff. And you're trying to get to the end, and you got to keep going. At the end of the day, excuse me, at the end of the night, I think we went about maybe 20-something miles. 20-something miles hauling because we didn't know the time. He said, well, I'm not going to tell you the time. You better make it. And in your mind, you're thinking, man, did I? And it's torturous because did I make it? Am I doing all this for nothing? Did I, did I give it my all, and I'm still, gonna, and I'm still not going to make it? So why even try? That's a temptation in our lives. Why try? Why should I keep going? I'm going to fail anyway. That's not how winners think. That's not how Christians who are winners should think. You know, I'm going to keep going, and if I failed, I gave it my all. And I saw guys around me, and they would, you know, kick back and this and that. And toward the end of selection, I'm talking, they would put us in situations we thought, there's no way we can do this. There's no way we can do this. We had to do it. At the end of selection... Toward the end, about maybe a, a mile or two before the finish line, it was daylight, and there's a truck there, and they're giving us all these things. They're giving us these MREs, more batteries, pencils, and this, and I'm like, oh, it was a mind game. We're not really finished. And so I threw it all in my rucksack. Okay, whatever the, whatever the next event is, whatever the next challenge is, I'm going to need it. So I'm putting it in my rucksack, and I'm hauling down. I get to the end. They say, you're done. I'm like, I'm done? What about all this stuff you gave me? You're done. It was a mind game. It was out of the, what are the other mind games? I'm talking days and, and nights walking through woods where there's snakes, where there's all kind of, you know, boards. And I finished, and, but they'll tell me something crazy. They're telling me, now empty everything that's in your rucksack. We want to see what we gave you. You know what the problem was? Some people thought, hey, this is almost over, and they threw the stuff away. They threw it away. And here they'd gone through everything, everything in selection. And at the very last, maybe, hour of the selection course, they give them all stuff like, we're done, man, we don't need this. And they chucked it into the woods so there wouldn't be more weight in the rucksack. So we get back, they say, put your, put your rucksack on the scale. We want to make sure you had all the weight you're supposed to. Put it on the scale. Okay, you're over, you're good. Go sit down. Okay, let me see everything that's in there. I pulled out everything they gave me. Yeah, you got this, you got that, you got this. Okay, you got everything we gave you. You're good to go. Go sit over there. This guy, put your stuff on a scale. Put stuff on a scale. Where's it? It doesn't weigh it was supposed to weigh. Pull it out. Let me see. Where's the stuff we gave you? Oh, I figured we're done, so I didn't need it. I chucked it. You go sit over there. You go sit over there. You know what? They were testing us all the time. Every moment in life, God tests us. He checks us out. He tests us to see, are we going to listen to what he told us? Or are we going to minimize the things that he's given us? Well, this is a minor thing. I don't need to pay attention to that. Because we're saved doesn't mean that at the end we're not going to be judged for our lives and how we obeyed and how we were faithful to what he gave us. And so in our lives as we run this race, as we live for Jesus, there is nothing minimal about what he tells us in the Word of God. Nothing. There's nothing minimal. And so, again, here he says, he says, looking, he says, running with patience. 
He says, the race that is set before us. My race is not your race, and your race is not my race. You have different situations in your life that God's given you. And I have different situations God has given me. But you have to be faithful in the challenges God has given you. You can't look over the fence and say, well, man, I wish I had his life. His life seems to be a whole lot easier than mine. You have no idea what that person's going through. Run the race with patience. Be that individual in that church because the church is comprised of many individuals that make up the church. And so as an individual and as a church, we have to decide we're going to be faithful to the challenges and the race God has given us. We're not going to minimize the things that God has put in our lives. We're going to see the challenge through. There's many days I just want to give up. There are days I'm like, man, I'm done with this. I am so done with this. And then it comes back, I've got to finish the race. It comes back, you know, I've got a testimony. It comes back that this is what God has given me. And I can't jump ship because God didn't tell me to. And as an individual and as a church, we have a mission. A mission to, number one, love God, to worship Him, to be faithful to what He's told us, to be a witness to this world, to see other people saved, to be an ambassador for God Himself. When people say that guy's a Christian, he belongs to God. They know they can come to us. They know they can see in our lives that God is with us. They know that they can get counsel from us because God gives us counsel to give others. If we're not running that race as a church, we're not running that race as an individual, then we're not going to receive the rewards at the end that we should. And throughout this life, we're going to be highly disappointed. You know what gets me through the end of the day? I've got a goal. I've got a mission. I will not stop till it's done. To a, to a fault. And my own boss will times will tell me, hey, George, this is the bewitching hour. You need to go. I was like, no, sir, I'm not done yet. And he'll take off. My boss will leave. But he put me in that position because he knows I won't until it's done. He, he could have put anybody in that company. He could have hired from without. 400 some odd people in that company. He could have put anybody else in that job. I am not going to let them down. I'm not. I am not going to let myself down and give myself a reputation that, that I'm mediocre. I will not do it. I won't do it. And as a Christian, we need to do the same. We're all going to get tempted. All of us. We're not perfect. We're going to get tried. And we're, when we fail, we're going to have to get back up and keep going. And not just give up and say, well, I'll go well, man. I, uh, I guess I'm almost done. Just, just let me give up. I hate that. despise that. I can't, I can't deal with that. You know what? And I tell people, when I'm talking to them, I'm like, I don't want to understand you because I don't want to think like you. I don't want to understand you because I don't want to think like you. You have to understand who you live for. You have to understand what church you belong to. Not just this church, but the church of the living God. And that's what Philadelphia was. They were faithful to his word to the end. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the start line. He's the finish line. For who the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's patience. Despising the shame. He hated what he went through. But he understood the, the, the reward at the end. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. <clears throat> being stripped before the world. Being beaten before the world. Being tortured before the world. Being spit on. Being rejected by your own people. And crucified for everybody to see. He said despising the shame. Yet he went through it. Because if he would not have, we wouldn't be here. He wanted us that bad. Can you imagine 
that somebody wants you that bad, somebody wanted you that bad to be with them in heaven that they went through, excuse me, they went through, I'm not going to say it because it wasn't literally hell. Hell, believe me, is hell forever. But I'm going to say he went through hell to, to get to, 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 to have us. What we would, believe me, hell is we can't even compare what we've never understood hell is. If we saw hell, we'd be like devastated. We'd probably fall down dead of what they're going through. But as a euphemism, as a sort of play on words, he went through the torture. He went through the cross. He went through the rejection. He went through the excruciating pain because he wanted us with him. And what drove him is his purse, his his uh, character, love. In the book of John, First John, twice in the in the epistle of First John, he says, "God is love." So, because it is part, it is who he is. He went through it for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You were his prize. I was his prize. The church is his prize. You were his prize. The reason he went through everything for you when we didn't even deserve it. So he says, look to him. Put your eyes on him. Don't put your eyes on your career, on your hobbies, your friends, your families. Don't put your eyes on that. You set him on God, and then God is the one that says, and I give him all things to enjoy. He gives us the things that we have to enjoy, to enjoy, but not to love them more than him. And so, the finisher of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we go back to the book of Revelation, we understand what he meant. We understand that he says here, um, don't let anybody take your crown. He didn't let Satan take his crown. He didn't let Satan, when he was tempting him in the wilderness, stop him from completing his father's purpose. When his father allowed him to go through the, through the trials in the wilderness, he didn't let Satan take his crown. He knew where the finish line was, and it wasn't with Satan. It wasn't there in the wilderness. Don't let anybody take your crown. Don't let anybody dissuade you. Don't let anybody influence you away from God. Nobody. Nothing. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. The Bible says, and, I'll, and I don't have time, you can write it down. Psalm 8410. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, listen to what I'm telling him, basically is what he's saying. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says in the churches. You know, Recently, we had the Super Bowl. People were running around with jerseys. All oh, you know, Tampa Bay, uh, Kansas City, and the Super and Super Bowl parties. And one guys running around with uh, Pittsburgh Steelers or whatever their favorite team was, and they're not ashamed to have the name of the team on their jersey. Much better is when God will write upon your clothes the kingdom of God. You belong to the kingdom of God. Not to a team of sports, not to a club, but you now belong to the kingdom of God. When I was a soldier in my uniform, over here was my name, Noriega. Over here was U.S. Army. Much better is the kingdom of God. Much better is a new Jerusalem. Much better. Eternally better. Because the other, the, the other will perish forever. It will disappear. It will be gone. Never to be remembered again. But God's kingdom will endure forever. So as you become fans of, or as we celebrate 
things in this world and we're unashamed to wear the jersey of maybe some some celebrities you know name or whatever that we have or a team we it makes makes you hopefully think in the future one day I'm not going to wear that anymore it's going to be the kingdom of God I belong to the Lord Yeshua I belong to the king of kings <clears throat> The other churches under the angel, angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen. When he says it, it's done. It's it. it. I mean, he has the final word. The faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. I know what you're doing. And I know that you're neither hot nor cold. Basically, you're indifferent. I wish that you were hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I'm counseling you to buy gold of tried in the fire. I mean, stuff that is really precious, not just something that appears precious, but that it has been proven to be precious. That you may be rich, that you may be rich and white raiment, I mean, the, the fine clothes of heaven, that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness not appear. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He says, here's a church that was mediocre, that was wishy-washy. They think they're all that because they, they have the right cars, they have the right houses, they have the right clothes. Their church is pretty rich. They have a, they have a coffee shop, maybe... You know, when you think of a mega church, they have a little bookstore, a, probably a real big bookstore. They have a major parking lot. They have all these benefits going on. They have, they're, the, they're it, man. They're the one church you want to go to because they have all the conveniences. They have the clubs for the kids. They have these programs for that. They're going to take these field trips. They got all this extracurricular stuff going on. But man, God isn't the center of their life. It just isn't. I remember visiting with my family. We would go sometimes to the Christmas specials at uh, Central Christian Church. I'm here to down a church. You walk out, you got people necking outside. There's people just going down outside, just like they were, you know, at a backseat in a drive-in movie. And inside, inside the, the the service, you got people that are like Cirque du Soleil from the stage, and they're all they're half naked, and you can see all the body parts. And I'm thinking, this is church. Oh, they drew a lot of people. They gave away a lot of stuff. It was like a carnival outside. But God wasn't center in their lives. He wasn't. I could tell by what was going on. I could see it. They were trying to draw people to come to church with worldly things, with things that you would, you would see down in the casinos downtown. Let me ask you a question. Is God so ugly that he's got to tempt you with something else that you'll come to church? Is God so horrible that that you have somebody has to entice you with something else because he's really not that he's not really that great? That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying with what they're doing. Sure it is. Oh, let me you know, you didn't come for God, you came for the show, but then we'll give you God afterward. I know you came for something else because you really weren't interested in God, but we got you in the doors with what attracted you. That's what they're saying. That's what they're doing. If you go to a church because it's a show, if you go to church because they have all the extracurricular stuff, if you go to church because they have all the conveniences, and, and I've seen where people rate the church, well, the preaching's okay here, but the, 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 the praise band is better, and they got this and they got that going on. I can you know go get my coffee and my latte and sit in the service. And, and it's not about when you walk in that service, and you are concentrating on what God's talking to you. If that's not it, man, you're in the wrong church. You're in the wrong church, man. Because Philadelphia wasn't that church. Philadelphia was about being faithful to what God had said. It was a small church. Laodicea is like, we're rich. The guy says, because you say I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Don't you know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? Don't you realize that? 
I counsel you to buy gold uh, tried in the fire. What's gold tried in the fire? The Bible later on tells us your, that your faith be tried in fire. That your faith, which is more precious than gold, tried in the fire. Peter tells us your faith is more precious than gold tried in the fire. How is your faith built up? Your faith, the Bible says, by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Let's boil it down to the essence. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So if that isn't the main reason you're coming to church, because you're getting filled, you're getting challenged, then you're in the wrong church and you're going there for the wrong reason. And so here is a church that's a complete contrast to the other one. Look in, um, well, look at Psalm 23 real quick. It's one of my favorite things in, in the Bible. God says, better is one day in your house, or the prophet says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. Some people are like, I'd rather be at the, at the football stadium. I'd rather be at the club. I'd rather be here over there. God says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. These guys are having all kind of fun about everything else except for God. Psalm 23. The Lord's shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. This is what David, and David is pretty much probably the same person that said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 23. Look at verse 6. This is where God is leading you as, as a sheep, as a lamb. David starts off with, the Lord is my shepherd. I know who's leading me. I know who's leading my life. And at the end, here's the finish line for him. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And here's the, here's the punchline. I, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the end. That's where Jesus the shepherd is leading you. That's why he says, I'm going to make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar means somebody that's a support. Some, something very, very important. Without the pillar, it won't stand. He says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. David said, again, I'll repeat it 50 million times. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. And finally, when he finishes and he, and he tells us, good, God is my shepherd. And he's shepherding me through my life, even through the valley of the shadow of death even through the worst part of my life. He's going to shepherd me, not into it. He's going to shepherd me through it. And at the end of my journey, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is leading you on a journey. And part of it is as a member of the church. And as an individual, you are a, a, an important part of the church and you help make up the, 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 what do you call it, the characteristic of the church. If you are a liberal Christian, if you are a mediocre Christian and you influence others that way and the church goes the, the way of the Laodiceans, you were part of the problem. You were part of the problem. But if you are a Philadelphia characteristic type Christian and you influence the church for what's right you're part of the solution because it isn't you and now it's God through you working for that church to be all that it can be who are you who are you what role do you play are you a Laodicean characteristic of a Christian that you're looking for the extracurricular stuff in the church? Or are you looking for a church that's centered in this book and in God's purpose for your life? Because you will influence others that way. You either retain the right, he says, don't let anybody take your crown, you hold fast, or you're lukewarm and maybe even cold. Do you have to ask yourself, where am I? Every day. I finish work. I start out going to work. Man, I'm, I'm reading my Bible in the morning on my own in my, in my closet. I'm praying on the way to work. And by the end of the day, I could probably choke somebody. <laughs> That's just the way it is. It's not trying to be a hypocrite. It's just that it, it, things get to you. And it's a challenge. And I'm like, sometimes I'll stop. Like, God, where am I at here? Help me. Help me. Where am I at? 
Help me. And I've got to stop. I've got to look. Look, Lord, these are the challenges I'm facing. I need some help here. It's not that you're a hypocrite. It's that they, God is showing you your limits. God is showing you your frailty. And He's telling you, stop here for a moment. Gas up again because, man, it's sucking the life out of you. Get back alone with me even for a minute. Say, Lord, I'm going through it. I'm going through it right now. Remember I asked you this morning for help. I need your help right now real, real bad. And get through it. Don't go to it. Get through it. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that even mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that even mean? Does that mean you've got to sell everything you have? Be out on the street begging? That's not what it means. Contrast that with him telling the church, you guys think you're all that. You, have, you think you're rich. You think you got the best clothes. You think you got it all. But you don't even realize, man, you're naked and you're wretched and you're miserable. Like, what do you mean? Because spiritually, they're deficit. They got all this palpable material stuff. But inside, they're poor spiritually. The Bible tells us, hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to reprimand the rich? Hasn't He chosen the poor things of this world? And so He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that even mean? Well, let's get an example of that. Look in... um, Hebrews chapter 11. Here's a man that was very rich. So you'll understand. It doesn't mean that you've got to be, you know, in poverty. It doesn't mean you have to be destitute. It doesn't mean you have to be begging and on welfare. It doesn't mean that. It means that you understand where everything came from. You understand you uh, of your own, you have nothing. Nothing belongs to you. Everything you have is borrowed from God. Because in a moment, he can take it away, just like he did with Job. Naked came into this world, and naked I'll go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You have nothing. We have nothing. We're, we're entrusted with things for us to use, but we have nothing. Because in a moment, in the moment you die, you're going to go out of this world the same way you came. They're going to have to dress you because you're going to leave with nothing. Look at chapter 11, verse 24. Actually, look at verse 8 first. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. He said, by faith, Abraham. Let me tell you about Abraham. He was a very rich man. He's a very, very rich man. He owned thousands of cattle and sheep and camels, and he had a lot of gold and silver. God had given him a lot of riches. Physical riches. But now notice this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he um, should go, into a place, let me me go back. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, he obeyed. And he went out not knowing where he went. He didn't have a plan, man. Just God said, you're just going to go. Is there a plan? No, you just start walking, man. Grab your, pack your stuff up. And me and my wife watched this thing about the people living in Siberia last night. That's a hard life. You've got to pack up all your tent, everything in it, your animals, all your, all your servants, everything that they had, shepherds that were helping it, man. And here's this big you know, caravan of animals and people heading from uh, Babylon in those days or Iraq in those days all the way to Canaan land. And God just said, go. Let's pack up and went. He didn't have a discussion with his wife. He didn't talk about it with the servants. He didn't, he didn't have kids. He said, no discussion. This is what God called me to do. This is where I'm going. There's no discussion. You can go and stay. Just like Lot's wife. God said, go. She didn't want to go. Well, she got to stay. Not the way she thought, but she got to stay. And God said, go. And so he is the man of the house. He is the man that was responsible for what God was telling him. He said, oh, I'm going. And he went. He didn't know where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles. You know what that means? Tents. 
He was a very rich man. Very rich man. But in his heart, he said, I'm not building a building. I am a sojourner. I am a foreigner. I'm a pilgrim in this land. I'm dwelling a bunch of, in a place I don't even know. I'm the new kid on the block. And I'm by myself except my servants. And Lot, maybe. And God hasn't given this to me yet to inherit, but this is the land my children will inherit one day. But for now, I'm living in it like a stranger. He was a very, go back and read Genesis. He was a very rich man. It was like, it'd be like, it'd be like uh, Elon Musk living in a trailer. It would be like Elon Musk, the world's richest man, living in a mobile home. That's what it's kin to. He had no structure. He had no palace. He had no mansion, even though he could have built some of the best mansions because of the wealth that he had. But it says here, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as, as in, a, in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, that means tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him, the heirs of him of the same promise. They were his sons. They were heirs of the promise. And you know what they were willing to do? They were, living, they were willing to say, we've got a lot of money, we've got a lot of cattle, but we're not going to live like we're in Beverly Hills. We're not going to live like we're in Bel Air. We're going to live practically. When God came to visit him, you know where he sat down? He didn't sit down in an easy chair, didn't pull out a lazy boy. He sat down under a tree with God and two angels. When God came to visit him, he sat down under a tree, man. He said, when God came to him, he was sitting at the door of his tent. Man, there was no air conditioning back then. There's none of that. And yet here's one of the world's richest men at the time. Living practically. Not like he's, you know, flaunting millions. That's not how he was. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're not flaunting what you... Enjoy what God's given you. If God's blessed you, enjoy it. But be careful with your attitude. Be careful about flaunting things. Be careful about putting those things first. Because the greatest thing that God ever gave him after that was his son Isaac. And God tested him. Some people say God doesn't test you. Well, yes, he does. Oh, yes, he does. I'll give you verse after verse. He does test us. He tested Isaac and he said, take your son. I take him to a place where I'm going to tell you, and then you're going to sacrifice in there. And he, again, there was no arguing. There was no discussing it with his wife. There was none of that. He's like, that's, that's what God says. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. He went, and just about it, the moment he was about to <clears throat> do his son in, God says, stop. Just stop. I, I see who you are. I see what you are. Stop. He'll try you. He will test you. With the things you want and love the most in this world, He will try you. And those are the times God already knows, but a lot of times He's wanting us to see ourselves and to go through the experiences and through the victories of having won the challenge. That's what God wants from us. You ever tasted victory when you won something, how good it feels? You got through it. To me, it's almost a weekly thing. I, I, this is the most insurmountable trial of my life, and I just got through this major audit uh, with an agency in, in, in the state. And I was the only one doing the audit. My boss is, okay, he'll take care of it. I'm like, really? You left me alone to the wolves? And I had to take care of everything. I passed the audit. Like, thank you. It's like, thank you. I didn't want to fail. And it wasn't even all left up to me. It was stuff that people did before me. God will allow you to go through things. To bring you through those challenges. And have you savor triumph and victory. But the Laodicean church was mediocre. You cannot win unless you're cheating if you're mediocre. You can't. And so at the end of it all, I'm sorry, there's another one here real quick and we'll finish. 
Look at 11 and 27. Verse 11. Uh, no, verse uh, verse twenty four. I'm sorry, verse twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he has come to years, he was an adult, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Man, Pharaoh's daughter. Can you imagine? You're the son of the king. You're adopted in that family. You can have anything you want, all the authority, all the the goods. But listen, this is how I was choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ. Say, I'd rather you guys just mock me and reproach me because of who I belong to than to enjoy the, rich, the riches and the treasures of Egypt. And he had respect under, under the recompense. Basically, he respected, he, he considered the reward at the end that was God's reward, not Egypt's reward. And he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For endured, here is his patience, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He could have had anything in Egypt. And he looked over at a bunch of slaves. He said, you know what? I'm going to be counted with them. I want to be counted with them. They're slaves. I don't care. Those are my people. Those are the people of God. They have the promises of God. Yeah, for, for Egypt, in Egypt, I can do a little bit of time. But how long before my health fails? How long before my life ends? And I've got to meet the God of my fathers. No. It's not worth it. And he looked over at a bunch of slaves and he says, I want to be with them. Because they have a promise from God and they're not always going to be slaves. One day their kingdom that God promised them will be real. And so God, first, I mean, Moses forsook all that he could benefit from Egypt and from being a kin or family of the Pharaoh, of the king, and said, I'm going to be identified with these people over here because they have the promise of God. They were poor in spirit. They were slaves. Who do you choose to be with? Who do you choose to associate with? What is your inheritance? Where is the end of where you're getting? Where is the end of your journey? Where? What is your goal? What is your finish line? Who do you identify yourself as and with? Because that's the path you take. And so to finish up, go back to Revelation. And here it is. He tells this church... He says, at verse 18, I can't, he says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. It means that's the true riches. Something that's real. Don't buy something that's going to break down. You know, my car out there is from 2005. It's not going to last forever. I bought a used car. Even if I don't a new one, it's going to break down. It's going to be broke. Somebody's going to crash it, maybe. I don't know. But it's going to last forever. I think I have, but there's a lot of stuff I've had. I no longer have. It's gone. It's broke. It, it rusted. It faded away. But what really matters? What really lasts? What's the real treasure forever? Jesus said, Lay not up for yourself treasures on the earth where moth and rust does, uh, moth does corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up, for your lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where there is no moth, where there is no rust, and where there are no thieves. Lay up for yourself. Put your treasures in your heart in there. That's your true treasure. He says, I counsel you to buy of me treasures, real treasure. Because the stuff in this world, it's going to fade away. It's going to go. He says that you may be rich and wear the right clothes, the holy clothes, and not, not anybody see your shame and your nakedness when finally, you know, there are people out there right now there are homeless that used to be millionaires. There are people out there right now that they ruined their lives. They ruined it. They were seeking the wrong thing. They were investing in the wrong stuff. Here it is for you. Anoint your eyes. That means open your eyes. Put the salve of God's word in your eyes so you can really see. Because you, you put a lot of other stuff in your eyes, you won't be able to see right. But you put the salve of God's word in, what, in front of you, what you're looking at. And Jesus said, if, if your eyes 
If the light that comes in your in your eyes is darkness, your whole body, your whole life will be dark. But if that light which is in you is light, it will really be light. And you can go back to Matthew and look it up. Matthew, um, I believe this chapter, uh, chapter 5. No, no, it's chapter 6. You can look it up real quick. Chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. What are your eyes looking at? I mean, sometimes I, I, at the end of the day, I'm sitting with my wife. I'm like, man, I've wasted a lot of my time here looking at this ridiculous stuff on YouTube. Could have been doing something else. Um, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, see if I find it. I didn't write it down, but I just thought about it. How about the light of your eyes? There it is. Okay, verse, verse 20, 21. Verse 20. It says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth, moth nor rust does corrupt, or where thieves don't break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single or be, it, you know, you're, you have one goal. You're looking at one thing, not looking all over the place. Your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye be evil, that means you're always looking to evil things. Your whole body shall be full of darkness. And if therefore the light that's in, your, in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? What are you setting your sights on? What do you set your eyes on? What do you look after? What do you want? And if you're putting the salve of God's word on your eyes, you're reading it, and it's before you, and it's coming through your eyeballs, into your brain, and into your heart, and your soul, that's what's going to make you see. Really see. Behold, I stand at the door. This is how sad it is, and I'm finishing this church. Behold, I stand at the door. He's talking to a church. Why is he standing at the door? Why is he inside the church? And I'm knocking. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and him with me. That means we're going to have fellowship. Jesus here is drawing a picture. It's like he's outside of the church and he's knocking when Jesus is supposed to be in the church. But a lot of churches, Jesus is in the center of that service. He's not. They're not even preaching the gospel. They're preaching a kind of a psychology they're preaching philosophy, but they're not really Christ-centered. And they don't have any room for him, just like when he was born. There was no room in the end, so they just go find yourself in a manger somewhere out there with the sheep because there's no room in here for you. That's all a lot of churches are. It says, if, you open, if, that, if somebody inside the church sees him out there, and it's like, you know what? This church hearing about Jesus, and I'm, I'm seeing Jesus knocking on the door, and I'm going to go out there open the door to him. That means if you're in a church, he's calling out to those who are in this kind of a church. And you don't hear Jesus preaching. But all of a sudden, somewhere else, you hear him calling you, hey, come out of that church. Hey, open the door to me and let me come in. He'll save you. He'll save you. And now you will have fellowship with him, sup with him and him with you. Even he reaches out to people who are in bad churches, who are sitting there not getting the gospel, but somehow he knocks on the door and he says, hey man, if you hear me, they may not hear me in here, but if you hear me and you invite me in, I'm going to be your Savior and we're going to have fellowship. To him that overcomes, to him that overcomes all these challenges and all these obstacles, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in His throne. What verse is it? We're now in verse 21 in chapter 3. And to Him that overcomes, overcome all these obstacles, these distractions, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in His throne. And he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. You know, the very, st- very st- next thing you hear, and we'll go about next week, but I'll give you an introduction, and we'll, we're done. It says, after this, after he had a panorama of the churches and how each church was, he says, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking to me, 
which said, come up here. And I will show you what's going to happen hereafter. That's the rapture. And we'll go over that next week because what that means is he's talking about the churches. He's talking to us about the churches and he's talking to the churches. But now in chapter 4, he says, after these things, I heard a voice. And I looked and the door was open in heaven. He says, come up here. And after that, the church is never, ever again seen on the earth because it's the rapture. And now God, as I said out there, begins to work with the Jews again as his prophetic people. Church is gone. And so let me ask you, if you're here and you've never been saved, if you're here, you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. That means you have never looked to him and him alone as the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins. If you've never done that, you should. It's not about saying a bunch of words. It's about putting your faith in Jesus alone as the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins. Whosoever believes in Him shall be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shouldn't perish, shouldn't go to hell, but have everlasting life. Because God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn us. He sent His Son into the world to save us. Okay, and it's by faith. It's by faith. If you read all through John chapter 3, it's about those that trust Him, believe Him. He says those that do not believe Him are already condemned. It's not that they're one day they're going to be condemned. No, it says they're already condemned because they haven't believed on the name of the only Son of God. They haven't believed in the one that God sent to this world to save them. So if you have never trusted Jesus as your only Savior, today be the day to do it, Just to believe Him. The Philippian jailer was scared. He said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul told him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved and your family. So believe and be saved on Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all you've given us. Thank you. It's, it was long, but I, I felt that I needed to put all the pieces of the puzzle together before we left. Help us as we get into chapter 4 and beyond now into the book of Revelation. Next week, be with us. Help us. Spirit of God in heaven, open our eyes, open our understanding, and make us to walk with you. Help us to get through the challenges of this life, all the distractions, and make us overcomers. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.